Welcome to another episode of the Josias Podcast. This week we'll be talking about justice, what it is, what makes it special. And uh, first, Potter, you chose this music, which is uh, one of uh, Schubert's lead. It's very beautiful. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? So this is called Andi Musik, to music. It's dedicated to music, this song. And it's an expression of gratitude that the singer... uh, is expressing to music personified for having helped him when he was depressed, for having uh, <laughs> taken him to a better world when he was sad. And gratitude is a part of justice? Indeed, yeah, that's why I thought of choosing this one. Wonderful. Gratitude I think is returning piece, my... to someone, something. <laughs> it's very nice. It's very nice. You know, My suggestions were all more... Uh... Uh, Yours were more appropriate know. to the last episode. <laughs> yes, uh, they, they were left over from my ideas for the last episode. <laughs> yeah, if, you had, if you had suggested, um, I have a little list last time, I think that probably would have won. But, uh, <laughs> What's, what is I have a little list? It's, from, uh, it's Gilbert and Sullivan. It's from, is it's it's the, the Mikado, Mikado, right? Yeah. Oh, and the, okay, yeah. the high executioner, he has a little list. Remember, they never would yeah, be missed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he, <laughs> it's delightful. Yeah. <laughs> so, Justice. This is, uh, uh, I'm joined, of course, as always, by Potter Edmund and Elliot. Um, so, there's a sort of modern notion of justice. I don't quite know where it comes from, but the idea is justice is exchange between two people where it's freely agreed upon. So uh, that's sort of the minimal account of justice. Is this is this account right? What what, what do we say about that? So well, let's put some let's put some flesh on that. Like so, when you say uh, uh, an agreement between two people where it what what was the wording uh, where it's free or yeah yeah, yeah. It, there's consent on both sides yeah voluntary okay right so well what's what what's the voluntary right like if i if i'm uh threatening your children is that still voluntary i think technically it is that's probably not voluntary right. they, they probably wouldn't say that's voluntary so, so and you know if you were a kid they probably wouldn't say that's voluntary so what is it but otherwise what does it mean for uh yeah what what's the condition for freedom in this case since that's the crux of the definition uh, uh, I, I, it's a lack of a lack of coercion, a lack of yeah. having the a lack of, th- of violence or the threat of violence. Okay, okay. So as long as there's no violence or the threat of violence, and two people decide to do something, it's just right. 
Right. So, you know, uh, if I'm an adult and I want to buy heroin, and no one's making me buy heroin, and then I can go down and buy it for $100 or whatever it is, and that should be allowed. And maybe heroin's not the best example. That's, that's, you know, you can be addicted and maybe that takes away your consent. But, you know, if I want to give a girl 10 kopecks and she's of age and she, uh, she agrees to come up with me, then uh, it's all good. It's, it's, uh, that's just. We've, we've both agreed. Right. I yeah, guess it's, I guess analogous, trying... it's analogous to modern political theory, right? Where, right. Where justice is uh, comes from consent, either either some kind of explicit contract or at least some kind of implicit consent. Um, I mean, obviously, most clearly in social contract theories of the origin of of uh, the state and of the sovereign and so on. But then, even in in theories of um, the law it has to there has to be some kind of procedure by which the people give consent to the laws and then the laws are just so there, it's not a what makes a law just is not um something intrinsic to it it's the procedure of consent by which the law is ratified right and i i also want to say uh uh quoting you hotter i, I forget when you when you said this but I think it's analogous to the difference between how the moderns tend to view good and how Plato and Aristotle viewed good. You wrote, uh, to the moderns, the good is good because it is desired. While to Plato, Aristotle, and the Catholic tradition, it is desired because it is good. I think you can sort of see something similar going on because uh, uh, obviously justice does have to do with agreements or often has to do with agreements. But things... Uh, for the moderns are just just because they're agreed rather than having some sort of more objective content uh objective standard of equality or whatever it would be in the exchange yeah i i think that's true i mean it's it's also like a gross oversimplification right <laughs> on a podcast well you know i i mean it's it's a, it's it's a nice like bon mot but uh it's not <laughs> It doesn't tell you anything it, unless you already knew it. That's the that's what I mean. Right. You know, you need to elaborate. Yeah, on, and it's true. I mean, but then right, and it needs elaboration in order to yeah. to have substance. Um, yeah. but I think there's it, it's more than just an analogy because I think justice is actually dependent on the good. Right. And so it will depend on what you. What, what you think justice is will depend in some way on your understanding of the good. So why? So is... at the beginning of at the beginning of the Republic, to to go to a locus classicus <laughs> for the discussion of justice, right? Thrasymachus, um, he initially defines justice as the advantage of the stronger, mm-hmm. and then uh, but a little later he kind of summarizes that in a more vague way, which if you interpret it in an opposite sense to the sense he means it in <laughs> is actually, I think, a good, a, a true thing to say about justice. Namely, he says, justice is the good of the other. And what he means is that justice is not good for the subjects, it's good for the rulers. The subjects are just when they're obeying oh. the rulers. Um, so the other there means the ruler. So I'm just, that means you're actually benefiting the ruler, not yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, is, it, is it fair to say... Uh, I wonder about this. Am I being unfair to say that many, if not most, of the moderns really seem to be 
very uh, similar. Well, what are the moderns? Let's unpack that. <laughs> I mean, like, it's just too it's too convenient and sweet. Like, are you covering five centuries of political theory? And like, is it really that simple? It might be, but like, who are you? Who do you mean? I, well, I, I was thinking of Hobbes there. Okay. I often, I mean, I, it's probably Hobbes is probably not the first modern, but he's often in my head when I'm thinking about political. Uh, yeah. uh, theory or po- political science, whatever you want to call it. Uh, when I think moderns, I'm thinking Hobbes and the people after him. So, There's people earlier than him who I think he gets his ideas from, but he's sort of the uh, he's a nice, convenient, big name. Yeah, and he's a, uh, to, he's a systematic to start the discussion thinker, with. and there's like a clear consistency in what he's saying. Right, and doing. people have thought about him and wrote about him, and he's not some obscure guy that I've only yeah. Where, vaguely familiar with. If you, right. if you talk about like yeah, there, there's something nice about Hobbes specifically, where if you talk about Locke, what Locke thought about a bunch of things is kind of unclear to me because, you know, he wrote little essays. He's obscure. Yeah. I think he's purposefully obscure at times. And where Hobbes, you've got the Leviathan, it's all there. He's brutally honest. It's it's terrifying <laughs> and disgusting. Uh, yeah. Okay, so yeah. is that is that Hobbesianism? Not really. I don't think that Thrasymachus is, like, Hobbes is straight up a Thrasymachian, um, because there's the there's the social contact, contract sort of underpinnings of the Hobbesian theory of domination, right? So there there are, there's a whiff of Thrasymachus and Hobbes, and probably more than a whiff, but I think if you want, if you want someone who's Thrasymachus, it's, it's Nietzsche, right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and he's not really a political theorist, but he's you know a moralist of a sort, and uh, he would definitely say that that uh, true justice is the will of the stronger. Yeah, yeah. And no, in, so I mean, in Marx, you have a, a description of society along Thrasymachus's lines, but without endorsing it uh, the way Thrasymachus does. So Marx too will say that um, what people consider to be justice is really just class interest it's the dominant class that's imposing its power on yeah. the other classes although because for marx you have uh historical uh uh the historical dialectic in process and marx will say things like uh you know the capitalists exploiting the uh, labor of the proletariat uh he'll say things like this is in no way unjust uh marx is kind of uh, tricky on justice because he doesn't seem to have a his notion of justice seems to be historically contingent so for the capitalist time yeah that's justice is the capitalists exploiting the uh, exploiting the proletariat and it does seem very very much similar to what uh Simicus thought mm-hmm. yeah but then whereas in, in and the... then in communism it's not clear to me that he really thinks there is such a thing as justice in communism uh it's I th- was it adam smith who said or was it David Hume who said that if there was a superabundance of good, there would be no justice? In other words, if everyone had huge amounts of, uh, uh, there was more of any good that you could, uh, like material good that you could uh, want, there'd be no need for justice because everyone would just go you know, out in the Garden of Eden and pick whatever they needed. Hmm. Well, there is, I mean, one idea of justice that becomes very um, influential is justice as equality and right. i'm not sure if, if marx actually uses the the language of justice 
when he's talking about um, the disappearance of the kind of inequality of power that you have in class society, in a classless society. Um, but uh, certainly lots of other people who are sort of in the the tradition of of Rousseau and Marx's sort of leftist tradition in modernity, <laughs> to use that word that uh, Elliot hates so much. Um, <laughs> it's not no, it's not modernity. It's it's like talking about the moderns as a as like a, a singular reality, which I don't. I mean. Elliot doesn't like me making like, sweeping statements. Under theorized, under supported sweeping statements. What if we, what if we, what if we talked about two, the classical kind of world as, as if the classical world were a thinker and had opinions and like the classical world thinks this way. I mean, it's it's analogously like well, heavy-handed. When I talk about the classical world, I talk about it, I, I, I sort of uh, do it in the way that Thomas did where uh, lots of different people are saying things. I'm going to interpret them all to be saying what Aristotle said. <laughs> so Cicero says something, Isidore says something, all these different people say things, and I'm going to say, as they were saying, just like Aristotle. Okay, they didn't use the right words, but what they meant. Yeah, Act really means, ver- really means a habit. They really meant a habit. I, no, but I mean, you do have, you have, do have different and in, in competing ways of looking at things, obviously, between, you know, uh, Hobbes and Rawls. And, and Democritus. Or, yeah. But if you look at, I mean, already in what we've said about sort of modern conceptions of justice you see kind of two tendencies at work one that emphasizes freedom in the sense of consent uh uncoerced consent and then there's one that emphasizes more equality which in a way is reducible to freedom but it's everyone having the same amount of freedom right right so equality is interesting. Maybe, maybe let's uh, bracket and come back to the discussion of the moderns, uh, yeah. whatever that so, means, in a moment. But how, how Aquinas seems to start his discussion of justice is precisely with equality. He says, you know, justice means really equality. He starts there. Maybe we can uh, unpack what becomes, uh, what, what, where he gets to, what, what his definition is. I think... Um to derail the conversation slightly <laughs> I think that it's it's easier to get into this to the question of equality by starting where Plato starts with um, uh, with the sort of uh, the intuitive definition that comes from Simonides in the Republic uh, yeah. of justice is giving uh, what is due right or what, what right. is owed and yeah, speaking the truth and repaying your debts right and, um, you know, a, a lot of hay is made out of how bad that definition is in Book One of the Republic, but I think that it's basically a perfect definition. Um, if you, you know, if you tack on enough implicit baggage, uh, it's correct, solidly. Well, I mean, that's also kind of where he doesn't say uh, uh, speaking the truth and paying one's debt, but the definition that Aquinas uses is indeed... Uh, perpetual and constant will to render each one his his due exactly. his, his use exactly <laughs> and Aquinas says no this is correct and then he says if understood or right uh-huh. so he he glosses it right somewhat so so this I, I, uh, <laughs> but let's start there what I think is uh, is great about that is that 
uh, it's it's the sort of definition that anyone could come up with of justice, and I think it's reflective of what we basically understand justice to be as humans. You know, justice is giving what is due, and it's the will, the just will, is the will to to return what is owed, in whatever sense, in many senses. But yeah. Um, so then there's the question of of equity, or you know what what how do how do we determine what's owed and that that's where things get a little bit more difficult right and it, it also so there's a couple different notions that come in one is what does it mean to be equal but within equality is also the notion of uh justice is outwardly directed it's it's towards another because you can't have an equal without something it's equal to yeah. equal can't be on its own, whereas you can be fortitude, you, you can have fortitude, be fortitude. You can have fortitude or have temperance, uh, you know, on your own, sitting in your own room. You can use those uh, or, or exercise those virtues. Mm-hmm. But justice does seem to be outwardly directed. Yeah, that's why I said that in a way, Thrasymachus's uh, vaguer formulation of his definition is true. Justice is the good of the other. Mm-hmm. That is, it's immediately concerned not with my own good, the way fortitude is. Is fortitude is sort of standing firm in the good against threats and so on, or or temperance, um, not destroying my good by excess or defect in pleasures. But justice is immediately concerned with someone else, as, as you say, uh, giving the other what is due to him. That is the, his good. Yeah. Right. And and, and uh, this notion of equality, it, it comes, for Aquinas, it has something objective, it seems like. He seems to think that in exchange, at least some sort of rough equality can be reached in any sort of relation with another. So in other words, it's, for him, there's more than just the freedom of consent, well, where it's, so what, I want what is, this, you want that. What does he mean by equality? Equality with respect to what? Well, it'll depend. There, you'll, Aquinas divides um, justice into different kinds of justice depending on who is relating to whom. So you have you have two divisions into two. You have a, a division into general and particular justice, and then particular justice is again divided into distributive and commutative justice. So. First, the first division, general in particular, um, general justice is the justice that we render to others in common. That is, what we translate as general justice is actually, um, he actually uses communis, their common justice. That is, what, what, what we render to uh, others in common, to the, the common good of the community of which we're a part. That's general justice, which he also calls legal justice because it ends up consisting in conformity to the law, since the law is what shows you what you need to render to the common good. But then particular justice is the relation to um, a part, not to the whole, not to the whole community, um, but to a particular within that community. And then there are two kinds of justice depending on whether the one rendering to the part is the ruler 
or another part that is the one in, in charge of the whole or just another part. And the, the one who's in charge of the whole renders distributive justice to the parts. That is, he just divides the goods uh, of the community among the parts. Um, Agamemnon divides the spoils of the Trojan War among the, the Greek warriors. That's distributive justice. <laughs> so justly, too. Yeah, well, he, he fails in justice <laughs> there because uh, the kind of equality there is not an absolute equality. You don't want to give each of the Greek heroes the same amount of spoils, but it's a, a equality of proportion. That is, the, you should give them spoils proportionate to their merits. So, I so was, you want to I give was, Achilles a bigger portion than other people because right. he merited more. Mm -hmm. so if I can interject just really briefly, I was talking to my 7-year-old uh, uh, and 10-year-old last night. My wife said, uh, discuss something with them. So I said, okay, kids, what's justice? And I sort of started leading them through. Uh, and Ned said, uh, well, it's about things being equal. And I said, well, how do you mean equal? And he started thinking. He said, well... Not really equal, because you always get more ice cream, Dad. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's great. Wow. <laughs> but who's the one who divides the ice cream? Is it you or Catherine? This is a big question. <laughs> yeah, Beatrice then started questioning the actual division. Yeah. Is this happening out of respect of persons, or is it happening because of merit? <laughs> or because of differing need? Yeah, the 10-year-old the started immediately... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> implying that it was respected persons and also that it was, you know, self-dealing. Uh, and I quickly shut the discussion down and sent them both to their rooms. No, just kidding. <laughs> Not really. Right. But, so uh, in, in distributive justice, you don't want an absolute equality. But in commutative justice, that's one part relating to another part. And there, so that's like um, exchange, like uh, uh, trade. Yeah, would for be, example, you'd have exchange. To be just. So, I mean, it's very interesting to, to look at, if you look at sort of the social history of uh, the human race as far as anthropologists and so on can reconstruct it in earlier societies in sort of tribal and then clan level societies you have uh, distributive justice as the main way right. of, of uh, dividing up the goods so you'll have the, the chief or whatever and everything will go to him and then he'll divide it up Right. Um, but then later you get commercial societies where the main way of uh, distributing goods is actually exchanged between uh, people at the same level. And there you want a, an equality, not a proportion, but an equality of good to good. So if, I, if you give me a bottle of wine, I should give you something that is um, equal to the bottle of wine in value. Yeah. Right. However one determines that. Yeah. Um, and so wait, so wait. If we if, if we go back in the to eye, I should poke you in the eye. Well, if we go back to the uh, <laughs> our initial question that Joel had um, about uh, like whether justice concerns intrinsic goods and, and all of that, you know, if, right. if there is no such thing as the intrinsic value of a bottle of wine, and I value a bottle of wine at at the same value as a thumbtack then if you consent to the trade, it's a fair trade, right? Right. There you see very clearly the dependence of that sort of subjectivist account of fair trade, of justice, but and commutations even, on a, a subjectivist account of the good but or of value. Even, even objectively, would it be fair? 
and it uh, so I think I mean, it something would be about, fair. I've always wondered, fair? you know, yeah. I'm, if assuming that we both hold those things to be equal in value, uh, and we make the exchange, I don't think that there's there's a, I don't think we're duped in, uh, you know, misvaluing either of them if if we because they're sort of arbitrary objects if i were trading my you know my firstborn child for a bale a bale of hay uh then there would be something terribly wrong there but with these sorts of like trivial uh everyday things um or things the value of which depends on uh like highly contingent factors of of human delight or um like mutual valuation, it seems like you can have a purely subjective account of the the fairness of a transaction. To push Elliot's uh, objection a little further, and then you can respond, Potter. Uh, <laughs> if you take something like a diamond, it has a use value in stuff like drills and things like that. It's hardness, right? It's clear. But uh, the the main reason it's valuable is because people think it's pretty, which is pretty subjective, or at least somewhat subjective. And then also because the re supply has been so vastly restricted by these you know, people who sit on uh, uh, mounds of diamonds, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, so if diamonds were as, as common as pebbles, they wouldn't be worth much. They would be worth very little. Because they're scarce, they're worth a lot. So it's this sort of contingent thing that has made people willing to pay, and because of fashion, it's fashion and scarcity together have made diamonds very, very worthwhile, uh, very, very valuable. But if fashion changed to where you know diamonds weren't cool, they would fall in value, and if they were as common as, as pebbles on the shore, they would be worth almost nothing. Yeah, I mean, the value. You used there the term use value, which is Marx's way of talking well, about Well, it Joel. starts in Aristotle. Joel. It's Aristotle <laughs> first, right? Yeah. Um, it has its roots in Aristotle. It doesn't use the exact expression. But, <laughs> but yeah, in, in Aristotle, um, the, the concept is a little bit under-theorized, I think. Yes. And so the usefulness of a thing will depend on... Um, your understanding of the good life that is the we we need things by a hypothetical necessity this if i if i am to live well then i need diamonds and that hypothetical necessity is based on a an understanding of what it means to live well and um the more the more that my understanding of the good life for a human being um is true the more it, it really uh conforms to what actually makes human beings happy then the more my uh valuation of things i mean assuming uh, assuming that we're, i'm not just ignorant about the actual properties of the thing <laughs> or whatever assuming that you know i'm adequately informed informed about what this thing can do for me and so on what i can do with this thing rather um the more my conception of the, what the good life is is actually true, the more um, objective basis my valuation of the thing will have, and the more the more my understanding of the good life of human happiness is wrong, erroneous, uh, illusory, a fantasy, 
the more my valuation of things based on that understanding of the good life for human beings will itself be um, illusory. So diamonds, um, I mean, that, that this is kind of an interesting question. To what extent do, do beautiful, these beautiful gems that nature brings forth with their incredible hardness and, and brightness and ability to reflect the light and so on, to what extent do they really contribute to a good human life? I mean, they're for external adornment in a way. It's not really a good... Um, Although, I mean, also, diamonds can also be a help to contemplation, you know, looking Absolutely. at the, regarding the beauty of them and so on. Um, right. And it would, so I would argue it's appropriate for, for certain stations. Uh, uh, we were talking about how there's not an absolute equality with uh, distributive justice. So, you know, uh, it's right for a crown to have diamonds on it. Yeah. Uh, it, it's maybe vulgar for some, you know, uh, uh, merchant to be... Uh, covering his wife in diamonds but uh you know yeah, it, it seems it seems more fitting uh uh for kings to have to wear diamonds on the crowns or for someone who actually has a, a role in the common good of the society to be set out that way yeah to, to take another example right i go to the butchers i'm in, in, in living in 19th century germany i go to a butcher's shop um and buy some meat from the butcher and he, the butcher wraps the meat in manuscript pages uh with music of you know <laughs> lost uh, bach pieces um, right. you know, he happens has a stack of, of musical notation or whatever that he wraps his meat in right so i buy the meat with the wrapper for you know two groschen or whatever he's charging for it um <laughs> it's fully it's fully voluntary he doesn't uh he doesn't value that music at all. It's just waste paper to him. Um, but you or, know or, that in uh, 500 famous... years, it's going to be worth a fortune. <laughs> yeah, the famous story of years, the monastery. Also... I, I forget which scholar it was, went to, to, to this monastery, and they were lighting their fires with these uh, ancient pages from codexes that were... You know, only known editions of these various works, and they're like, "Yeah, this is how we start all our fires." Oh, no. He's like, "Stop! Can I have these? I'll take them. I'll get you other." There's a kind of beautiful. And then once to they that, figured out, you know, in, in this story that I only half remember, but once they figured out why he wanted them, they they stopped letting him have them. Said, "No, we're keeping these." Mm. Uh, yeah, but there's, I mean, there's something intrinsically valuable to the good life about. Um, great works of music or, or great works right. of philosophy or whatever um yeah so it's not it's not just purely fashion uh, and supply and demand that makes those although valuable. fashion plays a role right i mean right. uh pages yeah. of of like telemon or uh even like handel would be significantly less valuable i think than than pages of bach Right. Yeah. And why? Uh, is it because of intrinsic musical merit? Maybe. But a lot of these things uh, fall largely to, to like sociological factors. Right. Yeah, exactly. and, or if you look at a, a good like a watch, uh, there are there are these watch companies that make these, these uh, complicated watches and they'll make a bunch in gold, a bunch in platinum. And then they'll make like one as a special order in steel. 
which yeah. watch 60 years later now that they're vintage and collectible and historic is the most valuable one the most valuable one is the steel one because only one of them was made in steel even though steel <laughs> is the least valuable material interesting uh, yeah uh, Let, so it's scarcity seems to play a role so so you can also look at aluminum which is oh, not right. a yeah i wanted to, to take it out of fashion diamonds that's perfect right 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 so aluminum used to be extremely expensive to produce and it obviously has these wonderful qualities of lightness and strength and other it's, it's you, you can work with it white. shiny yeah shiny right yeah and so it used to be this hugely valuable thing, and people would make objects of, you know, uh, uh, like crowns and stuff out of, the, out of the aluminum. Of the and then they Washington figured out how to monument. make it for cheap. Right, right, right. They figured out how to make it for cheap, and uh, it's still useful. People still use it all the time. In fact, way more now that it's cheap, but no one makes anything nice out of aluminum anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's not, it's, it's because it's so readily available. It, and it seems just, like, yeah, if it's hard to make, if it's, if it's scarce, it seems, yeah, that should cost more mm -hmm. than if it's easy and anyone can make it for not much outlay. Let me let me bring another kind of objection against equality as the uh, essence of justice. Um, this is this is an objection that David Graeber, the anarchist uh, anthropologist, uh, develops at great length in his book on the history of debt. Where allegedly on the history of debt sort of vignettes. <laughs> quote-unquote history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting book. It is an but, interesting I mean, book. It's, it's, it's not very a full fun. history. It's not a full history of debt. It's sort of vignettes no. from the history of debt. Um, but it seems to me one of his theses there is that uh, the exact measurement of debt is um, inhuman. And the introduction of it sort of destroys human solidarity and uh, is a sign that human community is broken down that in in sort of um his uh his ideal uh, primitive societies uh like most anthropologists who's kind of in love with the <laughs> primitive societies they they have gift well, certain primitive right? societies they, they pick and choose yeah I mean, he doesn't like every aspect of them either. But the one thing he does like is he has, they have what, what Marcel Mauss called a, a gift economy. Mm -hmm. right. That is, there's no exact measurement of value and therefore no exact measurement of debt. Um, and in fact, people don't agree on their indebtedness um, before receiving a benefit. They just are given something and then later on they give a different gift um, either to the same person, the one that they receive the gift from, or in some cases to someone else, so that there's kind of a circulation of gifts. It, it's, um, it's very similar to uh, even the Iliad, yeah, you, or, yeah. or the Odyssey, when you see people yeah, going around and they give each other these lavish gifts. Exactly. Yeah, and, and there even you have, uh, I mean, in the Iliad and the Odyssey, you have especially gifts between different chieftains and so on. Right. But then the chieftains will distribute gifts among their dependents without right. you know expecting their dependents to give them gifts um i mean they they will give they'll give them various things and then they'll they'll receive various things and so on but there's not there's neither exact exchange nor is there this idea of paying your debts to go back to simonides's uh <laughs> definition mm -hmm. um there's not this idea that you have an exact 
debt that you have to pay back. Um, and that this, this comes about when you have a kind of, uh, a kind of, uh, breakdown of community or, or a kind of, um, depersonalization of human society. Well, I, see, I think this have, is Simonides was a merchant, right? Sorry? Simonides, if I'm remembering who he actually was, was a merchant, right? And his, his definition seems very appropriate for someone who's a in the business of buying well, and selling. Let's not pile on and start attacking Simonides. Okay? Well, no, 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 because, because well, what, do you need to, what do you need to have that sort of exchange work? You need to be honest about what it is that you're selling mm -hmm. or buying. And then you need to pay your debts. If you buy it on credit, which is how merchants often operate, you need to pay that back. And if someone buys something from you on credit, you need to know that they'll pay it back. Yeah. Right. So, and that kind of exchange uh, originates in relations between strangers. That is, you don't have um, that kind of exchange between members of the same tribe, say. But if they meet a strange tribe, then maybe you'll have them you know yeah as trade a few things and negotiate the the value of them and as so the human relations uh become more and more distant it's more and more important to have uh strict clarity about uh parity in exchanges right so like right. graber's graber ex example that that sticks with me the most is uh when you go to um uh, a, a drugstore or um, like a 7-Eleven or something and you buy uh, some gum you settle the transaction yeah. immediately so there's not even a debt it's it's all right. upfront uh, because there's an assumption that the two people involved have no expectation of goodwill toward each other uh, they have no relationship ongoing they will never see each other again probably and so the parity of this exchange needs to be established exactly and it needs to be concluded now where in like a medieval economy graber describes um, the sort of long lasting uh bookkeeping practice where everything was conducted through debts and debts were measured uh, in an abstract currency that no one actually yeah. used and all of this stuff um, but one thing, Graber's. one thing I'll, I'll say uh, to sort of push back against this like primitivist ideal. I mean, first off, it reminds me of Rousseau. There's like the the sort of Rousseauian yeah. fantasy about the woods before everyone had language, and you know I could sleep with whoever I wanted to, and, and then the bad people started Which, claiming property. Rousseau didn't seem to have much problem with that as it was. <laughs> right. So I think that. Um, I would suspect, and obviously I'm not an anthropologist, I've never lived in the Amazon or, uh, you know, Malagasy, like, plateaus or any of these places, but uh, I would suspect that in a lot of tribal groups that have gift economies, in reality, the, the, there is a, a, a logic of uh, equality that happens. It's just very yeah. sophisticated and subtle and maybe it doesn't correspond well to it's more distributive yeah maybe it's, it's more the, it's more the chief saying they need this uh i mean I, he needs this i remember you know. reading you know uh, one of the things that um one of the like anthropology things that i've read that's that's stuck with me that's really interesting is um bits of uh claude levy strauss's the savage mind uh and he talks about 
how um, you know the initial anthropologists go into these Amazonian uh, tribal communities, and what they experience is like, oh, everything is sort of basic. They only have a few concepts. Um, they can only talk about like food and war. Um, but then if you actually immerse yourself and you get to know the language of these groups, in reality, their uh, sort of conceptual taxonomies encompass their entire world. And every right. single thing that they encounter has a symbolic place and a value within this right. sort of uh, hierarchy of, you know, tribal magic or uh, value or some sort of uh, function even if it's a, a an arbitrary made up function like they'll they'll come up with medicinal purposes for plants right. just because they don't know what they do uh, or what they're for right so, so, so i think that let, let me yeah, to, to push back on graber's example first of all uh being a millennial i <laughs> would not buy gum with cash because i do not have cash i would buy it with what a credit card or a debit card which is this giant debt machine that I have with this giant impersonal corporation, which is uh, probably oppressing me and oppressing the store owners who have to take the credit, etc. Uh, second, I'm, I'm, I'm in uh, from a remote location down in the deep south, and I went to get my hair cut the other day, and first place didn't take cash. And then I'd forgotten my debit card, so I couldn't use the ATM. So I was like, uh, I'm going to have my wife come bring me some cash, I'll stick around. And they were like, oh, no, don't worry. Just, you can pay us the next time you come. There's, there's, this, there's this trustful nature to them. And I was thinking, you know, at home, this would never happen. <laughs> where I normally get my haircut, where I've been going regularly. Those people would not let me just walk out without paying. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, I mean, that's a confirmation of Graber. That's not a pushback. Well, but the, right. The, well, my, my, pushback is, my pushback is, is here that... In modern society, we are, uh, we're not, we're paying strangers using the me mechanism of debt just as much. Mm -hmm. And he kind of has a, a, a schizophrenic attitude towards debt. Debt is bad, which is, you know, in the modern society. But in the medieval times, debt was so good because it was a society of trust. Yeah. It's like, well, which one is it? And then my, my last point, so these, uh, these anthropologists, uh, write about the primitive society in such a, uh, or some of them do anyway, uh, in such a condescending way. Uh, they assume, kind of like Rousseau, they assume they must be good, they must be purer, and they must be simpler. So I, I was reading this book called The Savage Harvest, which is about uh, the Rockefeller boy going to Papua New Guinea, and, uh, or, or no, yeah, I think that's where he went. In any event, uh, he got eaten, ultimately. And the part of the narrative is uh, the early uh, anthropologists show up and they see this society that they take to be a society of free love and orgies. In fact, what's happening is the society has this myth that the ancestors are these white ghosts who have great magical powers and that they have to be appeased by two ways. Number one, by a complex system of revenge and revenge killings that involve eating the other tribe that's, you know, hurt your tribe, killed your father. You have to go kill that guy and eat him to make things equal again. And number two, they have to be scared off by doing disgusting, horrible, degrading things like having an orgy. 
So these anthropologists come in and they think, oh, look at this wonderful society. And they're going, how do we get rid of these ghosts? How do we get rid of these ghosts? And then at a point it gets, it gets tense, you know, like 10, 15 years before he shows up. And uh, one of them gets shot by one of the uh, uh, Dutch or whoever it is, uh, 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 colonists. And so they're looking to settle the score. They've got to go kill and eat some one of these, you know, strange people who've come and invaded their land. And it ultimately ends up being the, the Rockefeller boy that they... It's a fascinating book. Wild, wild. Yeah, what is it I called again? I don't, yeah. It's called Savage Harvest. Okay, that sounds great. That sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, wanna, it's really worth reading. I want to just say one more thing about... Yes, yeah, it shows the equality, too. They, they, it really is. They're trying to make... It's not an exchange equality quite, but their justice is very much in a weird way, an eye for an eye. And, and the last point about it is uh, the idea that primitive societies are good. And I mean, this society is clearly, well, I, I would argue based on this book, I don't know how accurate it is, but it seems to be pretty accurate. Uh, the demons are, are possessing these people and, and, and uh, uh, tormenting this horribly corrupted version of justice where you have to kill other people and eat them uh, uh, every time anything bad happens. Yeah, it's messed up. Very disturbing. <laughs> We're yeah. treating them. Well, I want to. I want to say one more thing about Graeber before we move on, because okay. I think that uh, you're treating him a little bit unfairly. <laughs> <laughs> that, that Graeber, he's dumb and anarchist, <laughs> faker. Or yeah. yeah, he's he's got a lot of confusions, but it's it's not. I don't think he, he is schizophrenic about debt. The point about. Um, the, the emphasis of those elaborate systems of debt with the abstract currency and so on in the Middle Ages, that's not to say debt is good. That is to say that the origin of money is debt. So he's saying money doesn't yeah. originate as one commodity traded among others. It just happens to be, you know, the most convenient of the commodities they're trading. But in fact, money originates as a way of measuring debt. Mm -hmm. Right. That you don't have, there's, there's never been a barter economy the way right. economists imagine it. That, that's what the point there is. And then part of what the reason why he goes after debt so much is because of the way um, the invention of usury makes debt an instrument of uh, exploitation. Right. So the, the lender can you know, squeeze every last drop out of the borrower. Um, and then, of course, there, there are certain problematic theses that come out of that, like that Christianity is a wholly perverse religion because it, it understands morality entirely in terms of debt, um, you know, what you owe to God and so on, and, and it has to be paid back by the death of Christ and all these things. So there's definitely some problems with the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> taking this as the framework to, to understand reality through. Definitely. But... Uh, yeah, there I mean, there's like a, there's a Nietzschean about, core yeah. to, to Graver. If you read some of his other essays, it becomes clear that like uh, everything ultimately is about sort of uh, relations of domination and uh, the sort of practical value of of uh, human relationships. It's it's a uh, yeah, I, but I don't think anyone's well. Maybe there are people out there who like take Graver as some sort of like monument of thought. That's <laughs> like grounding their it's an intellectual viewpoint on the world, but it's an interesting work, though. It's, it's definitely not, interesting, you know, and it's very enjoyable. Um, and it, and it's thought provoking, even if even if his conclusions aren't necessarily the uh, deepest 
he he lays things out in a way that you can really sort of toy with some of the absolutely set. yeah the vignettes are very like oh hmm let me think about that yeah one thing yeah. before before we so so does anyone want to say anything in favor of equality well I... where have we landed on equality being dead or being uh, uh, justice, justice having having a fundamental equality well uh, in a sense it's true right uh Right, in a sense that... I, I want to say that. Yeah, right. So there's a, an equality, but it's a proportional equality uh, that respects the need and the merit of the people involved and also what's what's being distributed and its intrinsic value, if it has any, and all of that. Yeah. I mean, one way of thinking about it is to, um, to connect, to, to think about the relation of justice to order. Yeah. Um, order... I mean, if you look at in in Homer, the you know, Homer doesn't. I don't think Homer uses the word dikaiosune, which is what Plato and Aristotle call justice, the virtue of justice. But he talks about dike, which is the root word from which that comes, and dike is the child of Zeus and Themis, and Themis Themis is kind of the order of of the world, DK is, is sort of like a judgment or what's in accordance with the order. Um, so you have this again going back to what we were talking about last episode when we were talking about uh, retribution. You have a, a teleological order um, among things, that is, uh, things are intrinsically ordered to an end and um, the order among things comes from their common uh, order to a, a common end, a common good that's being realized um, among right. things and uh, that's not, order is not simply equality, order is before and after, you have greater and lesser in order um, but the, the preservation of order which is what Dika finally it seems like it comes down to the preservation of order has to do with correcting excess and defect right and so making things equal in a sense yeah 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 so, so I, what? we we don't have much time left but i, I did want to talk about uh justice and prudence but uh, elliot you can you can make your point <laughs> well, next well but. i just wanted to point out so in thomas's treatment of justice uh he spends most of his time talking about the quasi-potential parts of justice Yes. specifically religion, piety, observance, epikeia. Um, and uh, I think we should at least like skate over those because okay. it's, I think it's, it's morally useful to people to, to have a sense of how these things relate to the concept of equality that we've just been talking about. Um, so like, Partic yeah, particularly religion, Partic which is exactly. an interesting case exactly. because, because so one of the things he talks about, he talks about this in right actually as well, but, uh, to be able to give someone else an equal, you have, uh, what's due to them, you have to be able to be somewhat equal to them. Uh, God is obviously, we cannot give what is due to him naturally, mm -hmm. uh, uh, so how can we have justice towards God? Right. That's sort of how the uh, objection runs. Yeah, and obviously the, I think you would say that um, justice, 
uh, demands what what is possible on the part of uh, the one giving uh, and what is sort of proper on the part of the one receiving, right? So if you, Joel, gave me a gift, which was saving my life in a boating accident, right? And, you know, <laughs> you were, you were uh, sailing on by and I was drowning and you saved me, okay? This is a, this is a great uh, gift. It's a great act of, of mercy in a way, and we can interpret it in a bunch of ways. But um, I would owe you something for that. Now, there's nothing that I could give that would be proportionate to it. I could never make Unless up for I... that. Unless you were also in a boating accident, or maybe you know you fell in the pond while you were golfing, and I saved you. It's right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so. a very undignified way to almost die. <laughs> right. So, um, but uh, you know, I'm not in a state of perplexity as long as I haven't saved your life. Um, right. But you know, there's an and there's an understanding that that. Um, an act of gratitude should be proportionate to the, the person, what has been received, and even greater, you know, if you if you can. But obviously, if I can't, right. then it's so, what I what I can give. Thomas yeah. Joseph White gave a, a lecture I went to that was that was really wonderful on uh, religion as a natural virtue. And one of the things he said is it's like a uh, child. You, your child cannot give you, uh, its parents something that would be what it owed. It, uh, it can only give, but it, that doesn't mean the child doesn't owe anything because they, it, it can't fulfill that. The child, you just expect the child to do what it can. Yeah. But in Supernatural, uh, because of Christ coming down, we in fact can, by being partakers in uh, the Mass, uh, we can offer God something that, strictly speaking, satisfies Him. That's right. Yeah. So because it's of the, the, sort Eucharist. Of the miracle of, of grace is the ability yeah. to you know, be partakers but, in a yeah, sacrifice, like make restitution that, in a way with yeah. uh, an equal kind. Yeah, uh, it's it's really beautiful yeah. because otherwise you you never would be able to to do anything that was remotely equal, and the expectation would be well, like little children, we'll we'll, we'll give our parents you know these drawings or whatever as signs of our love and that's great the parents are glad to receive it but it doesn't mean that oh now the debts <laughs> now you've given me something that's equal to what i give you uh but yeah. because christ became man we actually can we actually can uh, uh not by our own merit but through his yeah yeah okay so uh can we can we like uh jump through uh what about uh piety <laughs> Me. So can I back up just oh, a, yeah, a yeah, tiny so, bit? Sorry, because because you used the word potential parts there. Yeah, I want to just explain a little bit about the different ways in which we speak about part uh, of a virtue. Mm -hmm. So Saint Thomas is considering justice as a virtue here, and you have the the first division that we made at the beginning of the episode is uh, the one between distributive and commutative justice, or even before that, the one between general and particular justice, that's a division into what are called subjective parts, meaning um, they, the whole, the way, the way ox and horse are subjective parts of animal. The whole definition of animal is said of both of them. And that's, that's the way in which those are parts of justice. Not that justice is a quantity that has quantitative parts, but it's 
something general that can be said of those particulars, and therefore they're called subjective parts. So commutative justice and distributive justice are parts in that sense. Mm-hmm. Then, then he talks about what are called um, integrant or integral parts, which are sort of elements that make up any act of justice. Um, and that that will have to do with you know uh, knowing the under you know making a judgment about what is actually due and then uh, yeah. giving what's due, avoiding giving harm and so on. Those are, would be called integrant parts, and then potential parts, which is what we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. Religion and piety are potential parts of justice. Potential parts are like subjective parts, but they fall short in some way of the whole notion of justice. And there are two ways in which this can happen. The one is the one we've been talking about, namely that they fall short of being justice in the full sense because there can't be an an equality. You can't render to God something that's equal to what you've received from him, except in the kind of supernatural way that Joel was indicating. Um, Or they can also fall short with respect to um, the full notion of something being due. That is, uh, and this is, we can talk about that maybe in a moment after we talk about piety. But an example here is gratitude, which I was, uh, which we were talking about a little bit with respect to the music at the beginning, the Schubert. Um, Here, you don't have the the, the exact due in the sense uh, that Graeber criticizes. There's no... Uh, there's no legal obligation to give something to music after music has lifted you from your depression. Um, but there's a kind of quasi-moral do. There's a sort of uh, um, fittingness to rendering gratitude yeah. for what you've received. But piety, again, in, with piety, to come back to to the uh, concrete again, piety, again, like religion, there it it's not justice in the full sense because um, there's no equality. Mm-hmm. And Piety, the way St. Thomas uses it, uh, and the way it's originally used in, in Latin, um, is what you give to your parents, which is, you know, the, Joel's example of giving the child giving pictures to their parents. Yeah. It's gratitude to the parents for um, all the, 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 having received their being. Yeah. Yeah. It's then extended to... Uh, to also piety towards um, one's fatherland as the the country which has given one uh, existence in a sense, yeah. and then in, and then it's further extended to mean the same as religion that is rendering something to God for what we've received from Him. Yeah. So so religion and piety both uh, they both concern the relationship that you have to something superior. Uh, Right. right, something that you owe. Yes, like you have a sort of existential debt to, and then, in he he has a long section on observance and uh, truthfulness, uh, which is really great, and I I highly commend it to the listeners. So this is Summa Theologiae um, Secunda Secundae, questions one hundred two through one nineteen. Um. And especially, I mean, the the section on on truthfulness is fascinating because uh, I think that he he sort of inherits um, this strict understanding of truth, right? Where uh, truth is owed, you can't lie, period. 
right? There, there's right. there's no sort of um, it, it was Chrysostom who who has the like um, milk before meat, uh, like you can dissimulate to people to like foolish pagans or something, right? It, right. Yeah. Um, so Aquinas isn't really into that. But then what's really useful here is I think all of the stuff that goes along with truthfulness or the opposed vices. And it's not just lying, but it's also boastfulness and irony uh, and hypocrisy <laughs> and dissimulation. But where are Twitter users? Well, right. So what's, I mean... Not that kind of irony, probably. Well, Although a- that's actually, kind too, I suppose. Actually, yeah. I, I mean, it, it's it, they're, they're all related, right? So... Right. Um, yeah, it's The, it's the worth, section on truthfulness always... I always end up thinking... Uh, what I should really do is take a vow of silence because I start reading through it and I just immediately start thinking of things I've said that are just falling short in one way or another. I, <laughs> you know, I, not as if they're explicit lies, but there's so many other ways that your speech can be unjust. Yeah, it can. And it, and it ends up being like, uh, you know, most of the stuff you say just for passing the time chit-chat, or if you're like me, you, you're like, oh, did you see so-and-so? He was such, you know, you see how he looked? Oh, doesn't he look terrible? I think he's drinking again. And it's just like, <laughs> oh, I shouldn't say any of that. <laughs> I should just be silent. Right. Yeah, and so so the, like, the, the final section is on affability, right? Or not the final. He talks about Epicaea and the gifts of the Spirit and blah. Okay, whatever. But affability is fascinating because if you think about like what what's the foundation of of civil society and like what what is it that enables us to get along with relative strangers in cities or in towns where we don't have like ongoing relationships with everyone it's an understanding that there's this common virtue of justice which means that in an encounter with a stranger or with my neighbor I will be friendly and and generous and they will return that same behavior toward me. And that this yeah. is owed as part of our uh, sort of debt to society. Uh, it's, it's, right. it's actually a part of justice, right? That we yeah. behave well, it's this a, way. It's a potential part of dust, right. justice. That is, it's, it's not owed in kind of a strict legal sense. There's not sort of an exact equality there right, right. In, in affability. But um, it's owed in kind of an extended moral sense of owed. Yeah, it's sort of it's a contextual act of justice that applies to right. certain circumstances, um, and then you know so that's opposed by certain other vices and yeah, yeah. Do you, do you still have your blog post about this? Uh, yeah, I mean uh, my blog I, has been uh, we can deep we can six, link this, so. but <laughs> I can I can reconstitute it. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. we can link it. We can link. You, you have an excellent blog post on this. Uh, yeah, it's I, affability, and I think that it's especially true it with yeah. uh, with like internet interactions because there's very little expectation of affability among strangers yes. online. Where in real life, <laughs> you know, if you met someone, some random person, at a social event, you would never treat them the way you treat random strangers on Twitter. Right. Yeah, not unless you were something was deeply wrong. So unless something was yeah, very, very wrong. Um, and you also see, like, modern society, I mean, this is such a, uh, people on Fox News rant about this while themselves, uh, somewhat hypocritically, perhaps. But uh, modern society, there's such distrust that's been sown among the classes, amongst the races, amongst uh, 
people in general and, you know, uh, uh, the coastal elites versus the uh, flyover country and rich versus poor and uh, the various races versus each other and immigrants. But society without friendship is really impossible. Yeah. If, if you don't have, and this is one of the reasons that Aristotle thinks the state can't be, uh, you know, has to have a certain size is because friendship isn't extendable infinitely, at least not in this world, uh, or at least not obviously. And uh, unless you have some sort of bonds of friendship, and it won't necessarily be the perfect friendship of equality all the time, but unless you have some sort of bonds like that, it's hard to see how society can be carried on in a just manner. Yeah. So the, the one thing I, I did want to talk about was, was justice being in the will, because I thought that was a, a very interesting. I don't know if we have any more time, though. Um, do, do you have to? I, I have to head out in like five minutes. Uh, okay. Potter, do you want to say something very briefly and, and pithily about uh, justice being in the will and, and prudence being in the intellect and the way that justice pertains to the common good because it's it's in the will? Yeah, I'll, I, I mean, I can give it a shot. <laughs> it's, <laughs> I mean, in Plato, you have a, in the Republic at least, right? Um, Socrates describes a, a sort of tripart um, view of the soul, where you have uh, reason, um, spiritedness, and desiringness, and uh, prudence would be the virtue of reason. Uh, fortitude of spiritedness and temperance of of uh, desiring epitomia, yeah. Um, and then justice is. It seems like Socrates is arguing that justice is uh, some kind of harmony or order between those three parts. Right. Um, but what you get in Augustine, and then more clearly in in the Scholastics, especially in Saint Thomas is a, a four-part division of the soul. There's the four parts of the soul that are sort of immediately concerned with the human good. Um, in addition to reason, um, concupiscence, and irascibility, uh, you have the will. Right. And justice becomes the virtue of the will, um, taken from the, I mean, Ulpian's definition, the constant will to give uh, each man his due. Um, now, the, so then you get four four cardinal virtues. The most important, obviously, is prudence, because that's the perfection of practical reason. It allows you to understand what's good for you and what are the means that are suitable to attaining what's good for you. And justice, um, the will doesn't need any perfection to will your own happiness. That's the natural act of the will. So I don't need, the will doesn't need to be rectified by a virtue to will my own good but I need the will to be rectified in order to will the good of the other that's right. why I love that Themistocles uh, uh, not Themistocles Thrasymachus saying right. so well justice is the good of the other in, <laughs> in the opposite <laughs> sense of <laughs> right. what he means it. you need a habit a virtue um, to make you uh, attend to what the other needs and then actually want him to have what he what is good for him and that's um what justice is so in a sense it, it, it is I mean as Aristotle says in a sense justice is all virtue related to another 
Yeah, it's and it's all virtue, especially general justice. We do right. divide it between particular and general justice. And general justice has to do with what I render to the common good. Um, and in a way, all virtues are ordered to the common good. So justice will, will require me to make acts of all the virtues um, in order to contribute to the common good. Um, it's true also in a way of, of particular justice, but less... Uh, right. Yeah, less so. Less so. So justice ends up being so important and so difficult. Who can be just? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's as hard as finding a good man, finding a just man. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, so speaking of, of uh, justice, I, I have jury duty, so uh, I've got to head out. Um, yeah, it's, it's so extremely fitting. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful to talk to you, and uh, uh, thank you both. And until uh, right. next time. Yeah, take care. Bye. And thanks to all our uh, Patreon supporters and so on. And yes. <laughs> do we have any emails to? <laughs>